Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, I will be speaking with Stefan Koldhoff and Tobias Tim about their new book, Art and Crime, The Fight Against Looters, Forgers, and Fraudsters in the High-Stakes Art World. Joining me as a special guest to help facilitate this conversation is Professor Philip Eliasoff. Stefan is the cultural editor at Deutsch Funk in Cologne, Germany, where he writes for Die Zeit, among other publications. In 2008, he won the Puck Journalist Prize for Investigative Reporting. Tobias is an investigative reporter who writes for Die Zeit on architecture, art, and crime. He and Stefan are authors of the award-winning book, False Pictures, Real Money. He is based in Berlin. Dr. Philip Eliasoff is Professor of Art History and Visual Culture at Fairfield University in Connecticut. He is the author of many monographic books and museum catalogs of American painting and has published over 500 reviews, articles, and essays in Art in America, the Smithsonian American Art Journal, and Artist Magazine. Tobias, Stefan, Philip, welcome to that said. Thank you very much for inviting us. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here, Michael. So I'd like to start these interviews by asking the authors to tell us about themselves and how they came to be at this juncture in their career. Well, well maybe I'll just have a start. Yeah. No, go. <laughs> you go ahead, Stefan. You, you are longer in this game. Well, both of us, I'm Stefan, by the way, because no one can see who's, who's speaking at the moment. Um, we, we are both journalists and both working about art and art market for, well, one can say for many years or even for decades. That means we, we are originally art critics. I'm working for German public radio, which is called Deutschlandfunk here in Germany. And, um, well, if, if you go to exhibitions, if you go to museums and uh, initially only want to, to see exhibitions and tell something about the artists and their works, you also get to know other stories. Uh, museum directors, curators, other peoples come to you and tell you, well, it's nice that you're reviewing this uh, Amedeo Modigliani exhibition, but do you know that five of the works here in that exhibitions are counterfeits, are, are fakes? And then you ask, how can you be sure? And they are telling you some things. And so over the years, Tobias and I both got to know some very interesting stories behind the scenes, so to say. Yeah, well, and uh, I'm, I'm a journalist too, an art critic, and um, uh, I work for the largest weekly newspaper in Germany, Die Zeit. And um, 
it's the same story. Uh, Stefan was already in the game uh, with art and crime when um, I also came across these uh, stories of um, uh, Nazi looted art and um, other subjects. And then there was this one case of a forger called Wolfgang Beltracchi and um, Many, many auction houses were involved in this case. Uh, Christie, Sotheby's, um, large galleries from Paris and New York and Germany too. And this German forger, we, we started to investigate this case. Um, Stefan for Deutschlandfunk and I for Die Zeit. And, and then we, we somehow, um, learned that this case is so big that we can't do it on our own. So we, we, um, we uh, started to work together on this case and uh, we investigated it uh, for nearly two years, wrote a lot of articles and uh, published a book on, on the Beltraki affair. And um, then we kept on uh, researching and investigating other cases uh, after it. And you write in answering the question of why did you decide to write this book, that it was not until this book that there really was a systemic investigation into how the social and economic development of the past few decades have turned works of art into investments and what effect this has had on these cultural goods and our relationship to them. So can you flesh that out a little bit, please? Well, our working title for the book was All the Bad Things You Can Do With Art. That was the initial idea behind the book, because we thought there are so many aspects. There's art forgery, there, there's art napping, there's stealing, robbery, things like that, but also money laundering um, by, by the means of, of art dealership. So we thought, why not try to give an overview of every every crime that can happen in connection with art? And um, I, I think, Tobias, when we started uh, putting it all together, also our experience of many, many years in that field, we were not sure what would come out in the end, how many aspects we would get together. And it, it was quite a lot in the end. Indeed. And you write that the international art market has two sides, one full of light and the other full of darkness. And so maybe we can start in broad terms speaking about the light and darkness and then Philip maybe you can take us from that forward maybe we could start with counterfeiting and the whole business of counterfeit art whether it be Russian modern art or the Modigliani's or even the question of the Da Vinci panel and perhaps the three of you guys can talk through that aspect of the book. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the bright side of um, the art market uh, is still there. And, and writing the book about, about all the bad things, we, we, we always have to keep in mind that there are also the good guys in, in this game. And, and there are so many um, serious uh, dealers and, and artists and experts and advisors who, who do a really great job and um, who, who yeah, help to, to make uh, art um, 
accessible and 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 explain it and and but then there are these um there there are these other uh, figures on the dark side of the planet and um uh, when art uh, when the art market um started uh, to gain uh, or the the money that was on the art market uh, when there was more money on the art market there were also um, more strange people uh, coming to the art market um, who tried to um, defraud collectors um, who tried to make a, a quick quick uh, uh, quick money and and um, and then that was that that's the, the point where the crime gets in you know there's so much money there's not a lot of regulation in the art market and that um, makes it so 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 interesting for the bad guys and maybe the the other people who make uh, the art market a very bright place are of course the collectors uh, the, the happy few super rich people who do not have to worry whether to spend another 15 million for Vincent van Gogh or another 20 million for Lucian Freud or something like that and they all pretend the dealers the auction houses but also the collectors it's all about beauty it's all about aesthetics it's all about culture and and these aspects but what we wanted to make clear uh, in the end it's all about money and money as we all know uh, also wakes up the crooks in in every business so that's also an important aspect we wanted to point out well uh, i'll jump in here gentlemen and emphasizing the bright side of the art market and the art world is is so essential as the pretext for the conversation uh i often when i'm on screen with my students i show them the art matters image you know that and let's face it the general public when they see in column inches when they see headlines in popular newspapers usually the art world is there's either a, some scandal there's controversy there's theft uh sometimes a wonderful original artwork is rediscovered and that also makes headlines so as we explore the dark side in your work and your uncovering of this dark side. I think that you've done an extraordinary job in going to the far corners. And truly, this is a global book you've written of so many, so much nefarious behavior. Uh, let's, let's focus in on some of the concrete. Let's get granular with some of the cases. And you begin, you talk about, uh, What happened from the old Soviet empire to what became very a la mode, the collecting of avant-garde Russian art? Uh, the, the old Soviet Union collapses and suddenly there's a vacuum. Uh, why do you think? Let's start with, let's start with Stefan. Stefan, why was it like almost an open you know, barnyard, the door of the barn was open. Why did so many nefarious characters rush into this world of the, the Russian avant-garde? 
I think it was because, um, but it, it's in, in it, it's to be as you should be and you should go more into detail because he did the main part of that research. But um, as you asked me, I think it was because all of a sudden after 1989, it was possible to tell so many stories where all these works came from all of a sudden, where the Malevichs and the Popovas and um, all, all the great artists we knew um, where, where they had been hidden, because um, from from Stalin's uh, age on, that, that's how the fairy tale goes. No one wanted to have them. No one loved them. They were forbidden uh, in in Russia. Then in the Soviet Union, uh, they had to be hidden under under the bed and um, behind cupboards. And then there was a kind of perest, uh, perestroika and glasnost when Gorbachev uh, came to power. And now it was allowed uh, not only to show those works of art, but also to deal with them. And of course, every grandfather uh, could tell the story, well, I had this work already in 1920 or already in 1931, and I hid it and I fought for it. And um, I, I put my life at risk to save these paintings. Well, here they are now give me money for that, to be as. Yeah, we, uh, we investigated a. A, a, a case that happened in Germany, but was a worldwide case. Um, there was suddenly this gallery in, in the small town of Wiesbaden. Um, and this gallery uh, called uh, SNZ Galleries um, had a, had a tr treasure trove of, uh, of artworks um, um, they had they they filled a, a storage facility um, with hundreds of futurist paintings by people like Malevich, um, Yavlensky, Rochenko, Lisitsky, Kandinsky, and um, if if these artworks uh, would be real, the, the worth of this uh, collection or the storage um, would have been maybe billions of dollars and uh, this gallery was known to nobody the 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 manager was somebody from who who was not from the art world um and uh the the owner said that he found all these paintings in in Russia and that he um over the years of the past years and uh, and that he some of them were smuggled out of 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 Russia by painting them black and then um and uh, recovering uh, them afterwards um uh, but um he didn't he couldn't connect to the large auction houses they were they they early on they 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 felt that there is something suspicious about these artworks and um, uh, about this mass of of uh, uh, artworks and um they 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 didn't want to deal with it so there were these little small auction houses from uh, the countryside in Germany that suddenly had these exceptional uh, uh, Russian modernist uh, artworks and um, uh, then the police came in uh, at, at one point and there was a large uh, police investigation, an international police investigation 
And um, there was also a trial going on for years in, in, in Wiesbaden afterwards. And it was really um, difficult to um, for the judges um, to solve this case because there are um, so many experts in the field that um, that that are I you know I don't know how to put put it but their eye is maybe um, is is, is uh, somehow their eye is uh, how, <laughs> my my English is gone. Let, yeah. let me jump in. Let me jump in. Yes. Do you think that the stylistically, let's start there. Yeah. These, these works, so presumably Malevich, Elizitsky, uh, Malevich, are, let's face it, these are rectangles, squares. These are geometric minimalist works. So do you think that was an, an stimulus that so many of these works presumably were being copied because they were uh, easy for a forger. They were not bringing out Ilya Repin, very famous 19th century academic masterpieces. They weren't works by Soviet masters like uh, Gerasimov or any of those great, those great, any of those paintings of academic realism, instead geometric abstraction. You think that was part of it? Right, absolutely. But you, you know, they they thought that it's easy to to fake uh, Malevich. But when you get the real experts on on the paintings, then they can um, they can divide the fake from the original, and they can tell. You know, it's it's not just a rectect rectangular. <laughs> it's it's also you have to look at how the composition is is done and um and so uh, some of these pieces really looked cheap and fake from from the first sight at them um yeah Stefan. There, there, was, there, there was another aspect. Um, th those people from SNZ Gallery were, were cunning enough uh, not only to to counterfeit um, those those works of art, they also founded uh, an own institute of experts, which they called INCORM. Um, so some experts who presumably were located in Great Britain and in other parts of the world, and who issued uh, certificates for these works of art. So they not only um, forged the works themselves, but also their provenance, the, the history of ownership uh, they, they should have. And that was very, very clever, of course, because you, you might ask, well, who is willing to pay $100,000 or 200,000 euros for, for such a work? But um, if, if you get the information, well, we have a very well-renowned institute. They even published books about those artists, catalogue raisonnés, so catalogues of the whole works of certain artists, where, of course, also the forgeries were included. Well, here's the book, here's the institute, here's the expertise. You can also talk to the expert who saw the painting. And that was very convincing in many cases. Because I just want to jump in a second while you guys continue to talk about this, to be clear that I understand something, which is that modernism, Russian modern art, flourishes under Lenin. And then when Stalin comes into being, this art category is not desired. It doesn't fit into the Soviet mindset of Stalin. And so 
as uh, Tobias said, all of these go underground. But is the problem here that there really was no sort of inventory of what existed in the 20s? And so to Stefan's point, as you put together a, a book of all of the history of these paintings, we don't know what existed when they went underground under Stalin. Is that part of the issue that we just don't know what existed? And so we have no way of knowing historically what was real and what is now seen to be fake? Absolutely. This is part of the problem um, that there there weren't um, inventories, but that's not true for all of these artists. Some of them have kept... Um, notes in their diaries um and um and, and these can help um art historians um searching for the provenance of uh, of paintings and then um also um tell what is a fake or what which painting is a fake and which not um but of course uh, and if if there were inventories they um uh, may have been destroyed uh, over the decades and during the Stalin era or or later on um, and um, this is um, this is a field where um, forgers like to go in this is not only the case for um, Russian avant-garde art but also um, expressionist art from from Germany uh, uh, for instance, where um, after uh, the Nazi uh, uh, dictatorship and uh, the Second World War, there were so many so many archives destroyed or looted um, that um, it is easier for a forger to to squeeze a fake painting into these uh, originals somewhere in between and say this is a this is an untold story, something that got lost in the war uh, uh, or something like that. You only have to take care um, that, that you use the, uh, the authentic materials. And that's a problem for, for many of the forgers, not to take care that there are no synthetics uh, in, in the canvases, for example, or that they do not use any colors or pigments that were invented only in the, in the 1950s or so. For works on paper, it's, it's nearly no problem because you still can get uh, paper from those times. You only need a book from 1911, which has, has void pages. You can you can tear them out and use it for watercolor or for drawing or something like that. And of course, you can't do those critical examination which you can do with pigments. You can't do that for watercolor, for example, up till now. So this is what what broke some of the forgers the neck, not only for the Russian avant-garde art, but also for forgers of, well, from from Van Gogh to Modigliani to um, to, to modern artists. Yeah, let's go. To Modigliani, why don't we proceed with that? What do you find, gentlemen, as the uh, why of the modernist Picasso and we and Miro and uh, Brock? But why has there been such such a high level of of, of counterfeiting, forgeries, and uh, we like to say shenanigans in the in the Modigliani market? 
I think it, it, it has to do with the life of Modigliani, who had, as so many, like also again Van Gogh and others, had, had nearly no success during his lifetime. And there was no inventory of his art. And, well, he, he died uh, of, of a lung disease when he was very young still. His, um, his, his partner, his wife, Jean Abutern, committed suicide um, when she was pregnant. So, um, th- there was not a kind of an of an estate or something like that, but there was that great myth because some art dealers very soon after Modigliani's death uh, started to promote him, and they were successful in doing so. There were exhibitions, there were sales in galleries, and so on. So very early, um, it, it, it came to know that uh, you could 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 make money with with Modigliani, and that's what people did uh, very early early on. If you go to an exhibition of Modigliani today in Cleveland or wherever, um, it very much depends on who is responsible for that exhibition, whether you see original works or you do not, because there are, I think, meanwhile, at least five or six catalogue raisonnés, so um, thick books, who claim that only this contains the authentic work of the artist Amedeo Modigliani. Um, they all go to court uh, against the other experts uh, because they say it's only me who has the right to publish that and it's only me who knows what is authentic uh, and what is not. The the most stunning example for me was um, an exhibition years ago in 2009 here in Germany in the Bundeskunsthalle, which is an exhibition hall run by the state, uh, by the German state who had an, an Modigliani exhibition. And it was absolutely clear that um, the, the curator of that exhibition was not serious. He was not working seriously. It, it was clear that uh, in the past he also had shown exhibitions with non-authentic works. But, um, well, the, the exhibition hall didn't care about that. And uh, we, we got to know that... Um, a week before the opening, there was an advertisement in the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, which is one of the most important daily newspapers here in Germany, which said, well, Modigliani for sale, that many millions, and you can um, visit it uh, in the Bundeskunsthalle from next week on, when, when the exhibition opens. So it was so clear that this exhibition was also for selling, not only for showing uh, this artist, Um but as I said before, nobody took care. The, the exhibition uh, was open. There is a catalog. Those at least four or five forgeries in that exhibition are published in the catalog as authentic works by Modigliani. And this is why the exhibitions are so important. If someone, please don't think I'm, I'm a racist, um, but I have to use some examples. If someone in China or in Brazil or in Russia or in Cleveland or in Cologne um, wants to buy a Modigliani and he gets presented a catalog from a very serious museum, he will say, OK, if the Cleveland Art Museum, if the Kunsthalle Bonn, if the Nationalgalerie in Berlin, uh, shows this work and publishes it as a Modigliani, it must be the real thing. So I'm going to buy it. You write something interesting. You say their early tragic deaths allow potential purchasers to participate in their lives as artists, that the tragedy of their life brings added value to the prospective purchaser because they're living sort of the tragedy of the artist's life of that lends itself to more 
forgeries because people want to own the tortured Van Gogh or the early deceased Modigliani. Is that right? Do I have that right? That, that's what one of one of the the, the very important um, auctioneers of of the twenties and twenty first century, Tobias Meyer, once told me. He was the one who sold, for example, the, the Scream by Edvard Munch, also one of those mythological uh, artists. And he he told me who who is going to pay. 80, 90, 100 million dollars for, um, for, for a work of art. Once again, he, he told me who is going to pay 80 or 90 or 100 million um, for a work of art. That's not somebody who wants to have some nice colors on the wall. That's someone who wants to become part of art history because he is the owner of an important work. And the more tragic the life of the artist was, the, the more important he becomes. Who wants to sell a work of art also wants to sell a story. The story of Van Gogh's ear, the story of, of the madness of other artists, the story of the, the early death of Amedeo Modigliani, and so on. If you decide to spend a lot of money on a work of art by that artist, you want to get the hands on the life of their artist to be a part. There, there are only 800 uh, paintings by Vincent Van Gogh. It's, it's one of the most exclusive clubs in the world. No, no country club, no, no golf club um, can, can compete with that. The 800, 800 people, or, or let's say 400, because the other 400 are in museums, that's a very exclusive um, club. It's a very exclusive way of social distinction from, from other billionaires to own a work by such an important and, if possible, tra tragic um, artist. Yes. Michael, just to validate that, that concept, anyone who's looking at the contemporary art market, it is, of course, Jean-Michel Basquiat, who is on fire, whose works, whose graffiti street art paintings are now uh, auctioning over $100 million. And we've already seen a wave of, of forgeries of Basquiat paintings out there in the market. So it continues. So before we switch to art and money laundering, could you three talk through the Da Vinci panel you yes. mean the Salvator Mundi, the, the, the most expensive um, artwork that ever came to auction? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, still debated. Um, um, it is a panel that, that came up in this little auction house in New Orleans and, and then was um, found by uh, some art dealers who who thought they have a real Leonardo there. And um, they um, kept on working on this, um, on this painting and, uh, and had a, um, some, somebody um, repainting the painting because it was in such a, uh, a bad, um, uh, in such a bad shape, this painting. It was, nearly repainted again some some art historians say it's mostly an, a contemporary artwork because uh most of the color that is uh, that we see today is um uh is is redone uh by um the restoration of of this painting and um 
then it came, uh, uh, yeah, it became an, an, an icon. Uh, the, the auction house Christie's was, was very, very good in, in promoting this painting in New York at, at their headquarter and, uh, did a, a great PR, <laughs> a PR um, campaign around this painting, and they found some art historians um, who say this is a real Leonardo, this is done by Leonardo. And then there are other experts that uh, we talked to, some of them, Stefan and I, and, and they are... Um, they they still don't know which parts of these pa this painting are done by Leonardo himself or um, uh, by scholars of of, of uh, Leonardo or maybe maybe some some other um, people later on. Uh, but this the, this painting was sold for four hundred fifty million dollar in uh, two thousand. Uh, 17 uh, and um, it, it was it, it is it is an example for um, how um, artworks are um, yeah gaining worth um, kept being kept in in so-called free ports uh, these large storages that are in in um, tax havens and um, uh, how they are yeah pushed from from one one continent to the other um, without really being seen by the public but but they are assets right and uh, and and this this painting is maybe one of the biggest assets on the world or maybe it's not worth uh, the price at all stefan right well, and for the very first time, I think for a broader public, um, it, it came to attention that the role of uh, art advisors uh, in, in the game of the art market, because the, the first one who bought this um, attributed, attributed painting, attributed to Leonardo da Vinci, uh, was a Russian oligarch called Dmitry Rubolovlev. He's not on any sh uh, sanctions uh, list um, when we talk today. And he had an art advisor in, in Switzerland who was called Yves Bouvier. And Yves Bouvier had the order from Rivolovlev, get me those works of art that are interesting for me. And I'm going to pay you um, a percentage uh, of, of the value. So let's say you give, you, you, you bring me a, a Lucian Freud painting for 100 mil million. I give you 20% and that's what you earn from me. Um, but it turned out, and that's how everything uh, came to light, that um, Rybolovlev not only cashed in, at least this is what Rybolovlev's uh, party says about Bouvier in court, not only cashed in those um, 10 or 15 or, or 20 percent, but he also sold the works of art um, more expensive to Rybolovlev uh, than he, he should have done. The deal was you get the um, the Lucian Freud for 100 million and you give it to me, Rybolovlev, for the same 100 million and get your percentage. But what Rybolovlev says is uh, Bouvier got it for 80 and sold it to me for 100 
plus the percentage. And this is how everything came to court. And this underlines what, what Tobias just said. It has become an asset. It's no longer hanging on, on, on any walls. Uh, that art advisor, Mr. Bouvier, uh, founded a company or well, usually had an art transportation company, but then he built those free ports, which is nothing but highly secure, climated um, storage facilities only for art and always near to um, any airports, like in Switzerland, but also in Singapore and so on. And he offers a full service for those people who want to invest, not only to collect, but to invest in art. I'll get you the works. I uh, take care for the storage. And if you want to resell it, we can also do that. Uh, you don't have to move the word of our work of art. They can come to the Freeport in Geneva or in Zurich or in Luxembourg or in Singapore. I show them the work. And if you want to resell it, everything will be done there secretly and no tax um, tax authority will ever get to know about those deals. Can I jump in on this, Michael, just to tie this up? Uh, there's no question that Leonardo and the Salvador Mundi is a painting of that has had a very, very long story behind it. Uh, I'll present the minorities report on this. I'll present the minority side on it. Uh, the the panel, this panel, which belonged to, the original belonged to uh, Charles II, and we do know in the inventory this painting existed. The uh, Here I'm being transparent. The, the restoration was done by the, the most respected uh, conservator who works with New York University, and she's an associate of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Diana Modestini. Uh, her um, scientific analysis of the wood, of the, what is in that panel, my take, and I'm just being now art historian, this is the wood panel that Leonardo painted on. I, I believe this is uh, authentic. Uh, if we went through all of the Giorgiones and the Titians and El Grecos and Tintorettos that are in, hanging currently, in Vienna and in and in London and in Paris and in New York, uh, there's been this considerable restoration and in painting. However, of the 16 known works of Leonardo da Vinci, was this object, the original studio object, my sense is based on my knowledge of the men and women who worked on that painting, I think that the debunking of it became a natural cause of, of global press. And the fact, uh, the final irony, and then we'll move on, the fact that the iconophobic leader of the Saudi royal family, MSB, is the owner of this image of Jesus of Nazareth, is even more uh, curious as a, as a part of this tale. But it's we shall see, and uh, I think that there's still to be determined about the, the Leonardo, okay? Okay, we will see. I don't think any of us will be purchasing it. But I want to go back to the Ribolovich case and talk about art consultants and oligarchs. This is interesting, especially today where we see Western democracies 
issuing sanctions orders against oligarchs taking big assets of their yachts and the like. And many of them were, as Tobias says, serious collectors of very important works of art. But what's interesting to me, and what I'd like to have you three focus on, is the role of the art agent in the, remember, we're talking about art and crime. And so the art consultant, the agent, really becomes an important piece of this criminal enterprise. You write that in respect of Rybolovich, if it were known that he was going to be the purchaser of, of a piece of art, then and knowing that he's worth billions of dollars, the seller would escalate the price of the art because they know that he could afford it and he doesn't want to be overpaying. So he hires consultants to keep his uh, identity unknown to the seller so that perhaps he gets a better price. But that whole process of hidden identity of actual owners, use of middlemen is fertile ground for fraud and other defrauding the purchasers and defrauding the the market generally. So can you speak a little bit, the three of you guys, about the role of these art consultants, agents, the middlemen, and how this promotes, if it does, uh, crime and art? Yes. I mean, agents can be so helpful for uh, collectors who are starting a collection. You know, they, they don't know how to act in the, in the art world. And the art world is so much about uh, codes. You have to know to be in the game. You have to know how to, to, uh, yeah, perform on an, uh, on an uh, art fair in order to get a painting because there are often, you know, a lot of people interesting, interested in one piece of art. And, and, uh, so you, you somehow have to, um, you have to persuade the, the dealer that you are the, the real collector who, who gets this piece in the end. And uh, so, um, um, art advisors can help collectors, um, uh, find their, their way in, in the, in the art world and, and, uh, and uh, decide what to collect on. But, um, there are a lot of cases where the art advisors then, uh, see, oh, God, this client has so much money and the, the dealings are so opaque, opaque. Um, um, I can, I can just, Turn the numbers in in, um, in in the receipt in the in, and and uh, and I can earn a few millions in a few minutes if I just if I just change some numbers in in, in my papers, and that's what happened here in Germany with uh, uh, with another ca- case called uh, Achenbach. Um, this guy um, was helping um, one of the most wealthy persons in, in Germany collecting and buying art. And at one point, he just, uh, you know, he first he turned uh, dollars into euros and made a little uh, little more money than he was supposed to do. And um, at one point, he just... Uh, faked uh, the the numbers uh, 
totally. And um, earned um, many millions out of this game. And um, this is uh, the problem when um, people yeah really rely um on on uh, on consultants like this guy Achenbach who said he can not only um bring the the greatest artwork to the collection of this um this wealthy man but also he can um make he he will gain a profit out of collecting he was guaranteeing a profit uh, to the collectors uh, a, a huge margin uh, of profit and uh, people should be suspicious when when they are uh, guaranteed a huge profit somewhere and uh, uh, especially in the art market um, and um, that was the case uh, with uh, the, the most prominent uh, art advisor, uh, Achenbach, in, in Germany. Um, in the end, it was all uh, fake numbers and fraud. Philip, maybe you can walk us now into the next topic that I'd like for you guys to discuss, which is antiquities and, yeah. and the trafficking in it, because and the role of museum directors in this whole art crime situation that we're talking about. We'll start off with the death of J. Paul Getty, who leaves nearly the largest endowment of any museum on the planet. Uh, The curators at the Getty there, they would say gleefully, we can buy anything we want. The problem is, what was available that was authentic? And the Getty was not doing their due diligence when the collection of the Getty was being formed back in the 80s and early 90s. And some very, very respected people like Dr. Marion True and the antique dealer Robert Heck, uh, who was involved in the infamous Euphronius Vase scandal with the Metropolitan Museum. And it became very, very uh, embarrassing that uh, these august institutions with some of the leading scholars were accepting works, uh, Etruscan and Greek vases and Etruscan uh, Etruscan sculptures uh, made of terracotta and marble from uh, uh, the south of Italy and bronzes. And many of them still had the dirt, the dirt from the excavators on them can you take us through what what was the life cycle of the, the wealthiest museum in the world and their being exposed for not doing their due diligence? Well, I think you already mentioned the, the most important points. Uh, there, there were certain pieces available and there was a museum who had the money to buy it. And that was, that was it. There, there were very few questions about who found those items, those archaeological items? Are there any, which is a normal part today, but it was not at that time, are there any confirmations from the governments of the countries where the things came from? 
from Italy, from, um, from, from, from Greece, of course, um, from other countries, that they might leave the country. Um, what do we know about where they have been found? That's an important aspect as well, um, next to the, to the monetary um, aspect. Um, if, if you simply dig out certain things um, out of the ground, you are distracting the the context, the archaeological context, where has that vase been before? Where, where has that, that piece of copper been found? Was it part of a, of a greater village? Was it part of a, um, a part where, um, where, where people had been killed and they were giving those things uh, for their grave and so on? So also the, 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 the knowledge we have about uh, early cultures are destroyed by, by those practices. And well, it seems, and I think it's that simple, that the the Getty Museum, Mrs. True, and the dealer, Mr. Hecht, uh, had no problems with not asking those questions. And those people responsible for the money in the wealthiest museum of the world had no problem of issuing uh, the checks um, for paying Mr. Hecht. And it was not only the Getty. You also mentioned the Metropolitan. There were also uh, other museums in the United States who, who bought from Hecht. Um, we know about, well, catalogs where, where you had the photographs and where, where you could make a cross. I would like to have this. I would like to have this. I would like to have that. And then you got your invoice. You paid for it and, and got the pieces. And no one asked. So my, my question to them, unfortunately, um, Mrs. Hecht, um, Unfortunately, Mrs. True does not answer, answer any questions about that uh, anymore after she had been convicted. Um, have, have you still been a scientist in any way? You're working as a curator in one of the most renowned, not only the wealthiest, but also most renowned museums uh, in the world. Have you ever thought about uh, what you do to science by behaving like that? Or was it only... I have the biggest collection. I have the greatest pieces in my collection. I think that was, was more, what was more important to her. It seems what was interesting is that Marion True, who you just mentioned, who was the Getty Museum Antiquities director, it was almost as if these were baseball teams competing for the best players or yeah. the football team trying to get Ronaldo's contract. There was a one-upsmanship that was going on among these museums, which led to their either knowingly or with willful blindness acquiring stolen antiquities so that they could say, look how much better our museum collection is than that other museum. Is that right? Yes, I think I think that's right. But there were also um, people who did not like to play in those football teams, like, for example, um, Oscar White Mascarella, who was a curator at the Metropolitan Museum uh, in New York. I was in contact with him. And he was one of those who had been offered certain items as well and said, not only said, no, I don't want to have that, and please leave me alone with that. Uh, he also made parts of those practices public and got fired at the Metropolitan Museum. He had to go to court uh, to get his job back because it was such a a dense uh, network of dealers and curators and museum directors, uh, it, it was virtually impossible for a single person like him, and I trusted him in what he told me, uh, to, to cut that net. Joseph, Lord Joseph Duveen, the famous art dealer in London, 
who was partner with Bernard Berenson, and they were responsible for many of the great old master paintings that are today in Boston at the Gardner and at the Met and at the Frick. Lord Duveen had this famous saying, let's face it, the Europeans have the art, but the Americans have the money. <laughs> That's true. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about money and art, and that, of course, brings us to this topic of art as a vehicle for money laundering. And I know that you guys spent a lot of time looking into this. And so can you take us a little bit through how art is used as a money laundering vehicle? Well, I think to, to understand how that works, one, one has to, to know two main points. The first is... Um, the art market is still the purest form of capitalism. Um, you 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 need to have someone. You need to have supply, and you have to to to, to have demand. The, the two main things. And if you have a work of art, a sculpture, a painting, or an archaeological um, finding, um, you you are nearly able to reach every price for that. If if you are good in marketing because, and this is this, the second point, there is no objective value for art. How, how would you name the price uh, for a piece of art? Do you want to, to have the weight of a sculpture or the, the square inches of a canvas? Um, you can't say how much a Rembrandt painting or sculpture by Bellini is worth. It's all a question of negotiations. And on the art market, that still works like, like on a medieval market. Um, well, you have 10 apples. What do you want to have for that? Okay, no, a little bit more, a little bit less. Okay, here are your two kreuzer or whatsoever, uh, and please give me the apples. That's how art market in many parts, not in all of them, still works today by handshake, by paying in cash. Um, and that means, um, let's construct an example. If you want to sell me your painting by Claude Monet, um, I can pay you with money, with cash uh, on the art market. Uh, no one will ever ask where I have that cash from, or at least for many, many years, no one asked. There are some new regulations. Uh, there are some new regulations uh, since since the last years. Um, and nobody would ask what you do with that money. If, if you really um, say where it came from, where you got it from, where I got it from. As I said before, it has changed in, in some parts within the last years. So um, let's say the other way around. I have some money, um, which I didn't tell uh, the, the tax authorities uh, about. I can go to a gallery and say, well let me buy that Van Gogh painting. Here are $500,000, um, maybe it's not such a big and not such an important painting, and the deal will take, will, will happen. I get the painting, and I'm, I'm rid of my black money, so to say. Two weeks after, I go to another gallery and say, well, this Van Gogh painting has been in my family for at least 70 years. Unfortunately, two wars in Europe in between, no more documents, no photographs, but you have to believe me, here's the expertise from the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. It's the real thing. It's an authentic work. And I would like to have, let's say, a million. 
that's okay for a Van Gogh painting. So within two weeks, I would have made um, out of black $500,000, a million cleanly washed um, dollars. And that's how the cookie crumbles. That's how it still works today, although there have been many new regulations, I say it for the third time, but the other way is still usual as well. And I can add that there's also the flip side of that, which is if you have illegal money derived from securities fraud or drug trafficking or arms dealing, and you want to make that money look legal, you could buy this Van Gogh for a million dollars from a dealer who's not going to ask you a source of funds questions. So you acquire the art with no questions asked of how did you come to have a, a million dollars to buy this painting. You can then turn around and sell it for $750,000, losing $250,000 as the cost to launder the money. So if you're paying a 25% commission, if you will, to launder a million dollars, you end up with 750000 in clean money. That's not a bad proposition either. It can work either way. And the problem that you pointed out, which is so central to this, is that in the world of art, because the prices are subjective and because there aren't really enforced regulations on galleries and museums to ask source of funds, know your customer styled questions, it is a goldmine for money launderers within which to operate. Well, meanwhile, in Europe, you have to identify yourself. You have to um, to, to give evidence uh, about your, your banking behavior and things like that. But please believe me, I was still in contact with an art dealer in, in Spain last week in preparation for our conversation. The other way which you describes, uh, described is still working as well because Everyone is a winner in that game. Also the one who is selling uh, the Van Gogh uh, painting, he gets a million or $750,000 and uh, no one knows about that either. So that does not go into his taxes uh, as well. So no one is the loser in that game. And everyone that thought that they were purchasing a, a Rothko or a Motherwell at the Nerdler Gallery, the most prestigious, the oldest gallery in the United States, when Ann Friedman was selling them, they thought they were winning two Rothko paintings, which should have been 10 times the value for being people were walking out. And there was a sense of, I won this, I won this. So it, it continues to be a, this, all the seven deadly sins were there. Absolutely. And now um, I just read in the New York Times a few days ago um, that uh, they even uh, killed uh, some uh, regulatory um, rules um, for auction houses in New York. And auction houses like Sotheby's and Christie's will no longer need to be licensed uh, in New York. Um, this is to promote a more business-friendly climate. And so we, instead of um, putting more regulations on the really not very much regulated art market, it's the opposite. And does that, we've seen 
litigation still ongoing today with stolen art by Nazis and families, uh, ancestors of families claiming that they have ownership in the art. How does the stolen art market and the relaxation of these rules, how is that going to facilitate art and crime? Well, in my opinion, um, it, it has become better within the last 10 to 15 years. There was an international conference, the Washington Conference in 1998, where um, a lot of countries uh, declared we want to uh, find a solution for the problem of Nazi looted art, although there is no more jurisdic jurisdiction uh, possible because um, it, it has been too long uh, since all this happened, so no one can be sued for that anymore, for stealing um, that art. And it's difficult uh, to find the proofs. Nevertheless, we want to try. We want to open up the museums, the archives. We want to make public what we know about the provenance of the paintings. And um, I was very astonished, but I'm very happy about that too. The first ones to build up very, very professional departments for provenance research with many, many peoples were Sotheby's and Christie's, because they very soon realized um, that there is no chance anymore to to sell a painting uh, if there's only the doubt that it might have been looted uh, during or seized during the Nazi era, because, of course, also lawyers and, and heirs know uh, that uh, journalists like Tobias and me uh, like to publish those stories. There will be uh, a Monet or a Van Gogh or whatsoever, or Rembrandt, um, that, that will come to the market, that will come to auction in New York or in London, uh, but the story is the following one. It has been stolen from a Jewish family in Frankfurt in 1938. Those works have become unsellable, at least on the official market. But also here, it is possible to sell them. But I would say that not many dealers uh, are, are taking that risk anymore. Mm. We're closing in on the end of our hour. But Philip, I'd like if you would lead the conversation with Stefan and about what is the newest phenomenon, it seems, in the art crime yeah. continuum, which is digitized art, something I don't even know that I understand. Well, we live in a new world, a digital age, and the question of what has happened to the global art market is, and since the publication of Stefan and Tobias book on art and crime was certainly within the last 18 to 20 months, the NFT, the non-fungible token has become just a rage of collectors. And there are serious problems here that I would want uh, our, our guest here to comment on serious questions that are aesthetic questions, philosophical questions. And not only is it clearly a perfect vehicle for more black money, more money coming from uh, illicit sources, paying for these. But the real question becomes, is it art at all? Is it art at all? And as of this morning, we learn that the great um, German photographer, uh, Sander, that his son wants to, his great-grandson, Julian, wants to digitize 10,700 photographs 
of August Sander, one of the greatest photographers, and essentially taking this legacy of photographs, unique, one of a kind, or from the original, and turning it this into um, Google Images. So where do you think this is going, gentlemen? Yeah, it's a it's a crazy hype around the NFTs um, that that grew in the pandemic, right? I mean, it, it's a it's a also it's, it was a time when we couldn't look at um, originals, and um, we were all sitting in front of our screens, and um, people were looking. What will be the next thing in, in the art market? And then there there came these uh, NFTs, and and the NFT is is not a medium for art, and uh, you know it's it's just a way to to um, to 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 document uh, uh, something on the blockchain. It's not uh, it's not per se a, a medium of art. It's it's just a it's just a business tool, I would say, or a legal tool, maybe. And um, and uh, what we see uh, in 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 the market of NFTs is mainly are cheap uh, illustrations and and little sketches and and things like that. And um, uh, but now also serious people try to to cash in and and to get some part of this money but i think it's um it's a hype and and at one point um uh, the money will be gone it's a it's something like a ponzi scheme in most cases i would say i i have to i have to still to i have to add that that i want to believe in walter benjamin and and the aura of a work of art when i'm standing in in front of a of a vermeer painting something touches me i i can't uh, describe what it is but it, it it is the aura of the original work but on the other hand maybe this is the definitive uh, signal that i'm getting an old man meanwhile so nfts um, if you are asking is it art or not i would tend to say maybe not well, so go ahead Bill. Michael, in a time where our institutions are being challenged. That is, um, here in the States, American democracy, we're challenged with fake news and what is what is authentic. And my, from 30,000 feet, my take on the NFT is that in the same way that we've been stripping away our belief in fundamental institutions, is there government? Do we believe in, do we have faith do we have faith in the International Olympics? Do we have faith in the European football clubs? Do we have faith in these things that 20 years ago when, or when we were growing up, we, we believed in these things? When the art world, when something that is sacred to me as an art history professor, something truly sacred, when this is being turned into a commodity and being stripped away, it is being devalued of its sense of the magic that Stefan says and its authority. Hmm. So in conclusion, I'd like two things to happen. First, Tobias and, and Stefan, you write in the end of the book that much would be gained if everyone involved in the art market, dealers, collectors, intermediaries, asked 10 questions. 
And so I'd like you to sort of, in short order, take us through what 10 questions or what of those 10 questions you think is sort of the closing statement that you want to make. And then, Philip, I'd like you to tell us a bit from the academic world about why this, I guess the question is, you and I have been talking about this for 40 years, why art matters. Well, those 10 points were, were an attempt um, at, at the end of the book um, to, to put art, the art market on, on a new basis, to ask questions like, can you be sure that this is the origin, original one? Can you be sure that the country where it comes from allows um, or allowed that the work of art left the country and, and, and things like that? Uh, we could enumerate all, all 10 points now, but I think what's what's far more important is um, let, let's give the art back that value that it once had before there was a market of of, of brightening the world, of uh, widening the, the widening the, the the horizon of everyone who is standing in front of a work of art, who is looking at no at it, no no matter in what what medium, if it is on a screen of a computer. Okay, then it's there. If it is an NFT, okay, then it's there. But let, let's try to find out what the artists wanted to show, what their view of the world was besides economic or social or political demands. And this is what those 10 points at the end of the, of the book should lead to, to be as. That's right. And, uh, well, um, please read our book and, <laughs> And I mean, one, one question I could recommend to everybody who wants to buy art is, um, be suspicious if it is a especially low price you are offered. Good advice. Philip, why does art matter? Art, well, I think art matters. The obvious is our, our humanity, our legacy, our human destiny, our commonality. So that as we awaken, as we see, for example, in Europe today, the museums in, 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 in Belgium and in Germany and in London are beginning to return the, the famous Benin bronzes from Nigeria. This is so significant of respecting other cultures. This is a view of the world that is global. It makes when we are in, in front of confronting that great work of art, and Stefan talks about being in front of the Vermeer, uh, when uh, stand in front of uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper in Milan. The, the sense of our, our being, being connected to a universe of the lives of men and women who have shown us the way of who they are, it's all about a, a, a universality, a transcendence, Art is still something we believe in, down to my toes, down to my bones, in every fiber of my body. And this is why the work that Tobias and Stefan are doing to expose the frauds and the, and the counterfeiters and these really these criminal characters that are infringing on what I would like to say is a universal faith, a, a faith I have, no more so than somebody being viciously anti-Catholic, anti-Buddhist, anti-Muslim, anti-Jewish. These are the things we need to believe in and we have to sustain them for future generations. The book is Art and Crime, 
the fight against looters, forgers, and fraudsters in the high-stakes art world. Tobias, Stefan, Philip Eliasov, thank you all so much for joining me on That Said. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks. It was a great pleasure. Thank you, Michael. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.